The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous thought and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Elaine here, how are you all doing? Hope you're looking after yourselves, staying well and taking care of each other. Well today's episode is a little bit different. Today I'm interviewing Miss Louise Oliver, which was very odd for both of us. Brilliant, but odd. Um, also, I'm really sorry if people can hear drilling outside. Um there is work being done to my building and no matter how much soundproofing you have, those drills are pretty powerful. So apologies. Um, yeah, so Louise and I chat about Louise's career, her pathway into the industry, but her main reason for being on the Persistent and Nasty podcast today is that she is crowdfunding for her first film with her brand new uh, production company, Baratalia Films. In the Room is a short film and it's a really vital and important film and sits alongside all of the advocacy work that Persistent and Nasty do and it is a much needed piece of art and uh, they are almost there uh, with their crowdfunder to hit their target and they're also uh, getting Creative Scotland what's called Crowdmatch Um, So it's where Creative Scotland match every unique bid made on Crowdfunder. So if you can, if you have the capability to donate to get this piece of really important uh, cinema made, that would be incredible. And if you can't, completely understand. But if you wouldn't mind sharing all of the details which are in today's show notes, they are also available on all of Persistent and Nasty's social media. And saying that. You can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. You can follow Louise on at Ms. Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram and I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. And of course you can follow Baratalia Films. Um, all the details for that are in the show notes, but it is at Baratalia Films on Twitter and Instagram. For today's episode, ooh, Louise was having a glass of red wine while we were recording. I was on water. Um, as you can hear, I'm still not completely better from whatever this lurgy is that's holding on. Um, so, oh, a wee hot chocolate, maybe a rum with apple juice, because I really love that, sparkling something, maybe some elderflower, uh, coffee, oh, hot toddy, (laughs) that's because that's really what I want, but you know, you can always just have a good old cup of tea. Sit back, relax. And enjoy. Hi, Louise Oliver. Hi, Eileen Stewart. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very excited. I feel feel like the dynamic has shifted slightly Ooh. in the podcast realm. Welcome to the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. 
is that so exciting? That's so exciting. So for everybody listening today, we are mixing it up and I am actually going to chat, uh, interview, question uh, my main gal, Ms. Louise Oliver. <laughs> it's so exciting. It feels like, I feel like I'm fangirling a little bit over like my own podcast and over you, which is like <laughs> slightly, <laughs> it's a slightly um lovely but odd feeling. Um, yeah, this is so exciting to be a guest on Persistent Nasty. I don't know if you know this, but that is like it's kind of a big deal to be a guest on Persistent and Nasty. It's a big deal these days. It's a big deal. It's been a big deal since the start. Um, I'm actually excited for everybody to hear why you are a guest today. Um, but actually, why am I so nervous? I love that you did a little exhale of breath. And the yeah. listeners can't uh, see that, but it was it was very cute. Um, so Louise Oliver, mm-hmm. let's have the potted history of you. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm getting to do this. <laughs> this is so weird. Okay, um, so uh, the potted history of me: I am a, an actor and a writer and a producer. I. Um, amongst many other things, um, as uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast and a lot of people who've been on this podcast can attest to, I do the hustle life like um, everybody does in the arts. So I do many, many things. Um, I originally set out to be an actor, but I was going to go to what was formerly known as the RSMD, it's now known as the Royal Conservatoire. But I was 17 at the time and they, was, they were like, you're a baby, you're too young, go away go away and come back when you're at the very least 18 but ideally maybe 19 and um and we'll talk then um but at the same time that same year I got offered um an unconditional place to study theatre studies at Glasgow Uni and I was just in that space that headspace where I didn't really want to be taking a year out in between high school I was just like kind of really keen to get on to the next thing um so I, I accepted that place and went and did that instead and had a lot of fun and met a lot of friends and just enjoyed it so I never really went back to RSAMD um or or the conservatoire if you like um and that was fine because that sort of set me down a different path and it set me on a path to like starting my own theatre company quite early on and taking work to the fringe and um kind of twigging onto the fact that actually um just being an actor probably wasn't or in the traditional sense of like this will be the only thing that you should try and do was really for me. So, um, yeah, so I ran a theatre company for a number of years and we won an award and took like mad wee plays to the fringe. And um, we ran a a residency at the Arches for five years called Dr. Sketchy's Anti-Art School. Um, And then sort of I wrote plays, I directed a couple, wasn't ever in any of them, which was interesting. Um, was I in any no I was in one I was in one called Waiting for Groucho which was a, a comedy about the Marx Brothers um, and um, yeah and I, I oh, sort of I think I saw that did you did you really I think I saw it was um, it went to the Fringe in 2007 and then then went to the Tron the October the October of that year and then I did a wee tour around Scotland <laughs> I totally saw that. That's hysterical. And also, how have I never put that together that it's you? I wrote that. I wrote that and, and was in it. 
Well, maybe it was really good. I mean, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> That's so funny that you saw that. Do you know why you probably saw that? Because there was an actor in that called Alan McPartland, who I think you knew. That's exactly why I saw it. That's how you saw that. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. That's mm-hmm. hilarious. We wouldn't become pals and meet each other for many months after that, but that's really funny. Like <laughs> another 10 years after that. Another, at, least, at least, yeah. Um, wow, that's so cool. That's wild. I'm also, I think it's really funny that that's never twigged before us having this conversation right now. That's really funny. Like literally um, never twigged because we've had many conversations about all the stuff that you've done before. Wow. That's hilarious. Oh my God. Wild. Um, so yes, I did that one. <laughs> I was in that one. And and I think I kind of moved down a different path, like the producing and making the own work with the company kind of opened up other doors for me. And I ended up um going to work for the French Society for a number of years and producing other stuff and doing mad shit like producing theatre festivals on the Glasgow subway and a cabaret festival and a cabaret tent at Tea in the Park. Like it was just, it was like, it was all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. Um, and I kind of got itchy again to be an actor. I'd sort of left it behind and it was always part of me. And I, uh it was like just something, just something in the back of my brain, just tapping away, going, "Remember me? You, you remember that thing that really, the the thing that really turned you on way back when?" And eventually, I sort of gave in to that voice and um, decided it was time to go back to acting. And that coincided with um, the New York Conservatory for Dramatic Arts hoping it, holding open auditions in Edinburgh during the festival in 2012. And I just thought, "Fuck it, I'm going to go in and audition." And I didn't really think it through. I just, they were there and I, I was working at the festival at that time. So I literally went in, they were on, like, I was on the third floor of Fringe Central and they were in the studios on the second floor holding these auditions. And I had my hour long break that I never really took for lunch. And I went down the stairs, auditioned, and then went back up to my desk and completely forgot about it. And then about a month later, oh, I'm so sorry, about a month later, <laughs> they uh, emailed me and offered me a place with a scholarship. And I just went, all right, okay. I don't think I can afford that even with the scholarship, but I'm going to say yes and I'll figure it out. (laughs) So I did. I deferred the place for a year, figured it out for a year, raised the money, went to New York, retrained as an actor, lived in New York for a bit, started another theatre company because I'm insane, Um, auditioned, did some off-Broadway stuff, really, really off-off-Broadway, like really fringy off-off-Broadway, like mental stuff and then moved back to Scotland with about 80 pounds in my pocket and nothing nothing else in the shirt of my back um and then I've been here ever since sort of like I sort of restarted my career here um got back into producing and writing but kept the focus on acting and I think you I met you around about that time not long after I got back in back from states in about 2016 I met you at an actor's workshop thing and went, oh, yeah, I'm keeping her. She's going to be my pal. I actively said that in my brain. So <laughs> that was that was going to happen. Don't know how um, if you know it was that intentional. And then that was that's kind of it. And then it's just been developing my career here since. So that is the potted history. So it's lots of just following my nose to whatever kind of sounds or feels exciting at the time and making a lot of mistakes and 
also doing a lot of things that weren't mistakes, things that were great. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it's a mad. That's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> that is the short version. Um, just for the listeners, you will have heard me laughing there is because Louise's phone went off in case it didn't register and just laughing at the fact that, you know, she's on her own podcast and forgot to turn her phone off. Um, like all this, every time, like every time yeah. I'm on this podcast as a co-host, I I do this every time. It's very rude. I'm so sorry. I'm going to do the airplane mode thing. There we go. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay. It's okay. It just made me, it made me chuckle. There's so many things that it, I think it's, you know, you know, you talk about your pathway because we know I hate the the journey word, um, but it has been a journey for you because you started out with a real clear thing at like seventeen of you wanted to go to drama school and go to the academy RCS, um, and that and how that shifted and changed really mm. quickly, yeah, um. And I guess that I think the big thing that for me that I think is so interesting and fascinating is just the fact that you just did New York without really thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just yeah. like, just went and did it. But it kind of sums you up. Oh, God. No, it's um... a good thing. It's because you know, <laughs> it's a good thing because it makes you go. It's that thing of like, whatever it is inside you that's driving you at that moment, you just go with it. And you might have the doubts and all of that, but you let that stuff kind of stay and fall away to the side where the momentum keeps pushing. So whether that is like setting up your own theatre company at what, 21 and taking stuff around Scotland and to the festival or whether it's deciding to go and audition for a New York drama school on your lunch break. (laughs) it was just yeah you know it is a bit mad and I think I look back on it now and you know even 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 in the 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 times that were kind of bad or things because you know not everything worked like not everything that we did with that theatre company landed some stuff got well reviewed and did well others got absolutely panned and you know you, you try things and you hope for the best and I think looking back on it now I think I just wasn't I I wouldn't I wouldn't use those these words then because I was far more insecure now but like there was a, a lack of fear of failure which I wouldn't have worded it like that then because I didn't have the vocabulary or the emotional intelligence to understand then that that's what it was but it's this idea of like do now think later which is not the in some contexts not always the best advice but it's it served me well in, in the sense that like if I thought about any of it it wouldn't I probably wouldn't have done it because I can be an overthinker in other aspects of my life so I feel like if I if I overthought any of it or tried to risk assess any of it before just diving in I probably wouldn't have done it and I wouldn't be where I am now and I wouldn't have the experiences I've had so I feel like yeah do now think later was, was kind of my mantra <laughs> without realizing it I think that's exactly you're right though it's like the you didn't have the fear of failure and I think it's something that we as a industry don't nurture and especially we don't nurture it in women Mm -hmm. um men will be given more grace and 
are allowed to fail a few more times than women are. Um, and it's definitely something that that younger 22, 21-year-old version of you, what a beautiful thing to have to not have that fear of failure. Because I yeah. definitely I had that fear of failure at that age, and that fear of failure actually is quite crippling, and then can mm-hmm. almost like you then end up self sabotaging. Oh, totally, one hundred percent. Um, and I think it's an interesting one because I think I've lost it as I've got older, to, to some degree. Like I still take risks, and I still have a bit of like, well, I want to do this thing, so I'm going to figure out how to do it somehow. But I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lot more cautious and a lot more calculated with it. It takes longer because I am doing more of that internal risk assessing. So I don't know if that's a thing that comes with age or maybe it comes with a bit of cynicism after being burnt in other contexts or in other, in other areas of my career. Um, without realizing that that's what was happening, that it was just making me a bit more cautious. So there is part of me that's like, I wish I could get some of that back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and also like people will know that you're a writer and you have mentioned that as well, but has writing always been something for you that you've always been doing? I mean, I kind of know the answer to this, so it's not me asking <laughs> the question, but it's like, you know, was it yeah. like were you writing short stories when you were like 10 do you know I found one the other day did you <laughs> yeah, I was looking I was looking through a bunch of guff because I was looking for something specific and so I was going through memory boxes and 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 stuff that was way up in the loft um because I'm, I'm terrible for not throwing things away and uh Snap, and that's, why we're, that's why we're friends Snap. <laughs> I'm uh, one of many reasons why we're friends many um, and I found an old Sailor Moon journal. Um, I was such a nerd. Uh, uh, and it was full of, oh, it's full of absolutely horrific, cringy poetry and like ideas for stories. And then the start of a short story that I got a little bit down the way with and then abandoned, obviously. Um, probably got distracted by a boy or something. Um, <laughs> just, I'm going to have to burn it just in case like something happens to me like suddenly and I get hit by a bus tomorrow and somebody <laughs> finds it I will never get over it I'll have to haunt them like <laughs> I'm like Chris have you found a Sailor Moon uh, notebook anywhere <laughs> don't you dare yeah, well, like, <laughs> don't you even joke about such a horrific thing um yeah so I have been right I've been writing since I was um, yeah can we point out the horrific thing is you dying in some sort of thing not me finding your Sailor Moon notebook <laughs> in my mind the, the latter is the more horrific thing I'll take being hit by a bus first no <laughs> before I let anyone see that notebook um yeah so I have been doing it from from a very young age and um and I wrote fan fiction and also I was I was a big one for writing fan fiction loads yes. of fan Mm. yes love oh, it yes. <laughs> well it's it's and you know what I think about it now like I look back on how much fan fiction I produced at that age and it's I do you know I sit down to try and write the projects that I'm actually on deadline for and it's like getting blood from a stone and I'm like see if I was writing about <laughs> characters that already exist in like genre shows I'd be like <laughs> churning it out but yeah it's it's quite there's quite a lot of it quite prolific on the old fan fiction um so yeah, I've been writing for forever. I always kind of thought that there would be, you know, that way when, when people ask, well, what would you do if you weren't doing this thing? I, f- I feel like writing would always be something that would be in my 
orbit somehow in some some way um so yeah it's always been part of my life in some some fashion and what was it like when you made that decision because obviously I know where you were at in your life when you made the decision to go to New York and do that you know you were working um in Edinburgh with the fringe um and you were building like people know knew who you were like you know you were really like you know you were at a certain level and moving in certain circles and did you have that sense of as you got or you were leaving to New York of going oh have I am I making a huge mistake here oh god yeah oh like as it as the countdown came to, and it was a mental time um like I was still working at the fringe office so I like I finished my last day at the fringe office on the 21st of August 2013 so I didn't even see out the end like the last week of the festival switched off my computer handed over the keys to fringe central basically and then 24 hours later I was on a plane and 24 hours after that, I was in I was in an orientation in my first class. It was that fast. It was insane. Wow. Um, I know. I know. Oof, uh, I'm getting stressed just thinking about it. It was it was a really insane moment. And that whole summer, I was plagued with am I doing the right thing? And it was also everything was up to the wire, like trying to get the money together was up to the wire because I wouldn't my visa wouldn't get released and or approved and then released to me until I could prove I could provide evidence that I had every penny that I needed in the bank account. Um, so for my tuition fees and and a and a bit of money because you're not allowed to work that first year, you have to be there for a year before they allow you your social security number and allow you to work. So you have to prove you have the money in the bank, um, and you're not just going to like sneak in and and you know work jobs where you get money under the table. So everything was up to the wire. Like I got my visa and passport back. Like the week before I was meant to fly so everything was terrifying and everything was intense and um, oh my god that is so stressful I was unbelievable and uh I and I loved my job at the fringe office I I believe I worked at the fringe office in this like dreamy peak moment the team was amazing the chief exec at that time was a a woman called Kath Mainland who everybody adored and I loved the people I worked with I loved the job it created so many opportunities and I, and and I it was I was definitely leaving on a high I wasn't leaving because I was like felt done with the job or things had changed and it had gotten rubbish or anything like that it was I was really leaving on a high so part of me was like what are you doing like uh, is is this this smart to go and be a student not only a student again but a student and an out of work actor ostensibly in the most difficult and insane city in the world or one of them anyway so it was just like what is possessing you to do this? So I had that doubt shouting my shouting in my brain every single day that summer. Um for that whole year, in fact. Um but I cannot tell you how deeply I do not regret setting foot on that plane because it was the it was literally the best thing I've ever done. For a number of reasons, but you know, some of them we don't need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, some of them that's fine. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> It was what I said earlier about this force that you have in you and you just keep going forward because lots of people would have gone, oh, actually, maybe I just shouldn't do it. And I think there will be loads of people that will want to know about what it's like to train in New York and how 
what potentially different it is from training here and what that experience is like so like I, I would also love to know more because you know like you and I have spoke about this like there was always one of my um my things that just never happened I wanted to go and do a year in NYC you still can babe and this is true I still can still life can. is not done life is not done exactly life is not done tis very true she's sitting there she's sitting there waiting for you the old big apple very she's a right bitch but she can you know if you get on her good side <laughs> which you will do you would absolutely get on a good side um yeah it's interesting that one because I didn't train in a practical course here um because I did an academic course um you know studying theatre at Glasgow Uni it's very academic there's very little practical stuff until towards the end and even then and I can't speak to the course now I'm assuming it's similar but the course that the way it was when I was there that final year had a practical element, but it was very much coming from a producer kind of like put like put a piece of your own work on. Like you are responsible for showcasing yourself at the end of this year, and and you will be in charge of doing it all. So it was kind of a bit like training to run a to run a theatre company, actually, in many ways. But in terms of performance training, everything I'd done up until that had been. You know, Amdram growing up, stage school. I went to stage school in Scotland uh, while I was in high school and doing all that guff and, and doing the EK rep. So in terms of conservatoire training or college or or sort of that sort of higher education type training, because I don't have anything to compare it to UK wise, um, I'm not 100% sure how it differs. But what I can say is, I I, I mean, I, I work in the RCS these days as one of my many jobs. Um, so I can certainly I can certainly observe how it's culturally different and the Americans are very um they're still very old school I think they're still very much an old school kind of like break you down to build you back up kind of attitude and they're very into their um method acting and very into their like specific techniques like the school I went to was very very rooted in Meisner technique they were obsessed with that so a lot of the, the, the scene study teachers we're really into that. And um, one thing, and I don't know if this is true. I mean, maybe you can speak to this, Elaine, from, from your days training here. We had a lot of audition technique classes because the the audition culture seems to be different there. Like you can, even if you don't have an agent or are just brand new out the box, you can be auditioning all the time, which is just doesn't seem to be a thing here. Like I think most people, unless they have a really good agent or maybe auditioning once in a blue moon. Um, so we were training to get good at auditions um, in a very specific way. So we were like, you know, a daily class on mock auditions. So you'd just be given be given scenes and monologues every day to go away because you'd be coming in the next day and doing a mock audition in class every day. Um, I would say that is different. Like, well, certainly when I trained and, and when I trained this many moons ago now, um, so things could definitely have changed. And, and we definitely did have mock auditions and um audition prep but you know like a lot of our stuff was working on classics and then working on modern work pieces um putting on various different performances I mean when I finished my three years I had 13 shows under my belt mm. um like from you know varying uh, sizes of character um all of which were vital and important 
but yeah I mean <laughs> you did have scene work to do for sure in addition and monologue work but it wasn't I don't think it was ever certainly when I was training it was ever really pushed as an addition technique quote unquote or mm. addition prep it was just like this is what you need to know and this is what you need to do um, yeah but yeah that on a constant level yeah that I would say that that is different and I would still imagine that that is different yeah and the other thing we did uh scene study also was- sorry in the UK it's like is like is much more Meisner and like Strasbourg are taught but not to probably the same extent you know we're still yeah. very much rooted in um big Stan Stanislavski the granddad of theatre which most of most of our modern um uh, theatre practitioners kind of come from that strain but yeah, yeah we also did like Brecht and things like that so yeah 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 it was interesting because like Stan the man and big Brecht uh <laughs> They got covered. I did all of them very academically um, at Glasgow Uni, but yeah, in terms of like acting technique, um, I suppose all of my training is rooted in all the Americans. That yes, the Strasberg, the Meisner, and and um, Uta Hagen, and um, yeah. But and the other thing they had is do a scene study, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's about studying the scenes that you're in and breaking them down and finding your objectives, all that stuff that. Um, we've covered when we did the whole Mike Alfred's stuff. Um, they, they're into that too. And but one of the things we did in the scene study was we would be filmed. We had a two camera setup in the classroom, and you were required to take your work away with you on a USB and review it at night. And part of your homework, in addition to learning whatever you needed to learn for the next day, would be to come back with notes on how you think you did and what you would change and um, so that was an interesting, I don't know if, I, I don't know if any, anybody does that here, but I thought that was an interesting one. I mean, they might, again, they might do that now. So if you're currently training, please let us know, because that would be really helpful. But no. Yeah, it'd be really I certainly, interesting to know. Cer- no, I certainly didn't have that experience. That was, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was. <laughs> the, you know, working on your scenes and objectives and all of that is very much Stan. So you would do that anyway, but yeah. Um. And then you decided, while you were out in New York learning, to set up another theatre company. <laughs> yeah, well, to be fair, I'm not going to take the full blame for that because I, um, I like my my section, section 23, shout out section 23, uh, class of 2015. Um, they were a bunch of hungry maniacs as well, and um, an actor called uh, Lucio, ne- Lucio Nieto who was one of my uh, dear dear friends in class he was sort of as um, he was kind of like I was 10 years earlier like really like what we're going to do we're going to take over the New York theatre scene by storm so he wanted um, to do um, an end of year thing We want he wanted to put on a show at the end of the year because we had something called jury which is basically auditioning it's an audition panel it's like uh, a panel of um casting directors and producers and stuff and you come in and you audition in front of them and then the other thing you got at the end of the year was um something called final reel which is a professionally shot directed um uh, show reel basically which is great um but we didn't really get like a showcase nobody was in a show it wasn't a live thing 
um and he kind of felt that we were lacking that and I and I I agreed so we kind of all pulled together and put on an end of your show and it went down so well that we decided well let's just do it again in a theatre in Manhattan somewhere and we ended up partnering with a theatre that I developed a relationship with over my course of my time there called The Tank um which is this fantastic theatre in Times Square it's like a really like edgy fringy theatre on the eighth floor of a building a studio theatre it's it's fantastic um I strongly urge anyone to just like go and look them up they're brilliant um and they just kind of through a relationship I developed with them by doing shows outside of school hours and I was in like a gender reversed uh, version of the Maltese Falcon, which is a an old 1930s noir movie. Um, and I did a bunch, yeah, I did a bunch of other weird things with them. So I just kind of went to them and said, we need a theatre and I think we're going to start a company. Can we do that with you guys? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. And we became a company in residence with them for a little while. <laughs> it's just like. I love that. So that just um, formulated or formalized us just making work. So we we did the end of your show again, which was a show called Dog Sees God, um, which was written by a guy called Bert V. Royal, who um, wrote the movie Easy A. Some of you might know that. Yeah, and um, I'm like totally nodding my head because I, <laughs> I have a couple of students who do that monologue. <laughs> It's, it's so good. It's so yes. good. <laughs> you know. And I played Van's sister in that. And um, and it was just, it, it remains to this day one of the best things I've, I've, I've ever done in terms of how much I enjoyed it. The cast was fantastic. We sold out. We got great reviews. Bert called us on opening night to wish us luck. And it was just like, it was really special. It was a really special moment. Um, Yeah. And it just went from there. So we did a few more productions. and then. As these things often do, um, I needed to move back to the to the UK. My visa was up, and I couldn't really afford to renew it. And I was coming to a place where I was like, I think I I think I might need to think about regrouping a little bit because the reality is, unless you have a trust fund or, or or somehow independently wealthy, it's very very difficult to live and survive in New York. Um, and you know, other people were like some some of the company members were moving to LA, some of them were moving home for a variety of reasons. It just got a little difficult. So it kind of um naturally dissipated, but in a nice amicable way. And and you know, you can still find the company on Facebook. You can have a look at what we did. We were called the the Blockheads Young Artist Collective. So if you put that in Facebook, you'll find it and you'll see pictures and see our little legacy um of what we did. Um so yeah. I mean Again, it's just that thing of it's showing the different ways that you can make art happen in the different places that you are, no matter where you are, where you come from, what your background is. But then, as you say, we then get to a certain point where you reach it. And if you aren't from a certain background, that that then is where the stumbling blocks can happen. Oops, absolutely. And everybody, everybody in that company, we were a bit of an ensemble. You know, everybody had about thousand jobs everybody needed to work their bar job and their babysitting jobs and and they also wanted to be out auditioning quite rightly because we all trained to be actors you know it's it's an extraordinarily hard to keep your head above water in any context working in the arts but especially in one of the most expensive and difficult cities in the world and that's just that was kind of the the breaking point for me as much as I adored living there and I adored the little tribe that I developed and became a part of um 
it got to the point where I was just working every hour that God sent to make rent and wasn't didn't have any time to do the thing that I went out there to do. So I was, you know, if I wasn't sleeping, I was working a bar job or working a dog or doing something to try and make ends meet. Um, and at that point, you're just like, this is not why. Plus, I turned 30 while I was out there and I was just a bit like, hmm, turning 30, healthcare, need money. I mm, <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> it felt like a no brainer, really. Yeah. And then obviously you came back and then, I mean, fitting back in must have been really difficult and then trying to navigate your way into the Scottish industry and what that looks like and how that worked. Oh, I mean, yeah, you, you and I have spoken about this a few times, I think, um, uh, over the years. I It felt like starting again, really, really, in, in a big way. Um, I feel like if you go away for any length of time, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it, I feel yeah, I feel like if you go away, it's really it, it's like you don't exist. You need to be sort of constantly, and this isn't just this isn't me just speaking about Scotland. I think it's any art scene anywhere. You just kind of have to be constantly in people's faces and around and on the scene, if you like. So if you if you disappear for a little while, it it might as well be that you <laughs> dropped off a cliff. Um, so there was a lot of starting again, plus the fact lots of people in the the producing world and in the sort of like senior theatre world knew who I was but I wasn't known as an actor and I didn't have an acting community I didn't have a tribe of people here um who were fellow actors I had a lot of fellow producers and a lot of people from you know you know pals of the people who ran FST and stuff like that and which is lovely and still am and I love those people um but it's different from having a, a community of like people striving for the same thing if that makes sense mm-hmm um so I had to find that um I had to go out and find it <laughs> and you did and I did <laughs> yeah yeah I'm so glad yeah um and I I mean I've said this to you and I think like me and maybe me not having left I don't know if I can say it maybe more easily in the sense that I do get the feeling and I don't know if it's a UK thing or if it's just a general thing with whatever but if when people go away to train and then they come back I think the industry can be quite unfair mm. and it's almost like this thing of well you you went away oh yeah yeah to train somewhere <laughs> else so what were we not good enough for you when actually that's got nothing to do with it it's about what you wanted to experience and what you wanted to do so yeah I think um I think I didn't go away so I think that having witnessed that I feel I've witnessed oh, yeah. that, I think yeah I think you're spot on and I felt it. I felt like I naively assumed that me having gone away and trained in New York would have some kind of currency to it in some way, that it might help matters um, to sort of break into an industry that didn't really know who I was. Um, but it didn't. Nobody cared. And if it was either on a, on a good day, they didn't care. On a bad day, they had that sort of attitude that it was a bit like, well, so you went away and trained. And I think... Um, yeah, that was t- that was hard um, because it kind of not that it did, not that it, not that it demeaned my experience, but it felt like I don't know. I, I I did that for so many reasons that aren't just related to the training because it wasn't really about 
there wasn't really it wasn't really about the status for me because if it had been about that I would have like been far more strategic about it and tried to get into Juilliard or something like that it was an opportunity that presented itself at a certain moment in time and and it was about it was about New York as much as it was about the training it was that's somewhere that is always kind of called to me and um I have a family history connection to and um I'd always said one day, even even from a young young age, one day I'll live in New York. You know, it's like kind of like wish fulfillment. Um, so there was a number of reasons for that that I went there. So it sort of felt not that it not that it hurt, but it's something a bit like it feeling a little hurtful because it was like it was it was about the life experience as much as it was about going and training to be an actor. And I thought that was valuable, and it felt like I was being told it wasn't. So it um, is valuable, and you know that now. I know you do that. Yeah. I know you know that but you know I'm just going to reiterate that for you not as your friend as someone who works in the arts of course it's valuable because it's life experience and that's what makes artists artists it's what we live and what we experience it that's what gives us something um slightly different from the the other person in the line yeah 100% and um and I don't regret a single second of it um I had a great time <laughs> um and obviously you came back and you started to kind of find your feet and meet people and then your writing kind of I think started to come back it did yeah started to write some stuff and this is kind of where we're now leading into our next kind of section of the Louise Oliver story <laughs> <laughs> This is so um, <laughs> it's not it's not it's just like you're used to doing this the other way around that's yeah, yeah completely yeah <laughs> um but obviously I would really like to kind of talk about one of your projects which which um I feel like kind of almost kind of reignited your passion for writing mm-hmm. is that fair which, to say uh the, the which one which play yeah yeah it did um yeah um so that's oh god that's been in development for ages um and it will hopefully uh find its way towards its finish line this year because i'm now developing it with um rob the wonderful robin yankovic brown at stories untold productions um uh so that is a play that um uh, it's about women and women witches and the the symbol of the witch is a, a sort of feminist political symbol and a symbol of revolution um and it came off the back of reading a a feminist memoir called going too far um and there was this mad like uh breakaway fringe group from the second wave feminist movement in new york in the 60s called which but it, which is an acronym w-i-t-c-h because it stood for women's international terrorist conspiracy from hell and their whole shtick was to dress up in black pointy hats and cloaks and go and disrupt things like wall street and and the, the you know the miss the miss america pageant and they they kind of the whole bra burning thing comes from them and and uh although not in a way that you might think, uh, interestingly enough. Um, and uh, so reading about them kind of coincided with, it coincided with my friendship developing with you and the sort of early seeds of Persistent and Nasty and um, the hellishness that was the Trump versus um, Hillary Clinton um, political campaign that led to him becoming president. 
so it was it was kind of um a sort of later in life political and social activist awakening in me that didn't really exist quite as strongly before it was kind of it was something something had changed in me and um and that which led to persistent and nasty as well so that that, they they all kind of happened at the same time so that play means a lot to me because it's kind of it coincides with me finding my way back into writing and remembering that I was a writer and wanting to do that again and with the journey that we're on now together with persistent and nasty they kind of all happened at the same time so yeah um do you think um that kind of activism was fired up because you'd it was so fresh from when you'd left new york with trump becoming and in, coming into power and that you know if you left in 2015 and he was a uh, became president in 16 mm. Yep. Do you think because you had actually that real, tr- that proper like visceral connection with that country? Yes, I think that was definitely a part of it. But also, I th- I'd never lived anywhere else. Like this is the other thing. Like I thought of myself as quite street smart and savvy until I live until I left and lived there. I realized I'd never lived anywhere else, and I jumped from that situation into living in New York and suddenly I was I had it was a culture shock on a on a number of levels things I thought I knew I didn't know things I thought I understood about intersectionality I hadn't a clue like there was things about poverty and 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 race politics and identity that I thought I understood which I had no fucking clue about uh, so it was really really eye-opening and 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 a huge huge like fast forward in my own personal development as a human and and learning to be a for, far more socially conscious human and not not so not not so much of like the, I, I assumed I knew things I used to assume I knew things I didn't um so there was a there was a big awakening in that sense a, a big life lesson moment and a moment for growth and yeah and and I I won't speak about this in too much detail but there was a lot of personal stuff going on there I removed myself from a relationship that I needed to remove myself from far earlier than I did and so that was shaking a lot of that off and sort of processing the trauma of a lot of that was also me finding myself for the first time in a long long time um I felt that who I really was had been muted a little bit for a long time um so all of these things all of these things worked in tandem to then kind of explode out of me in a way that you kind of see me now <laughs> like if anybody meets me now it's the result of a lot of that <laughs> I think that's I really I mean you know I'm going to say thank you for sharing that but also I think it's really important that you say that because I think sometimes us as persistent and nasty that people might have this perception of us that we you know are absolutely have always been fire out there push it away you know we are coming for you all of that kind of stuff but actually a lot of our stuff comes from our own things that have happened to us throughout our time and maybe people do realize that, but I do also think that sometimes it's nice for everybody to be reminded that we, that everybody can get to the point that we're at. Oh, sure. Yeah. So no matter where you are right now, you can get to the point that we're at. Mm-hmm. I used to think, and I used to think the stupidest stuff and have really fair, very poorly formed opinions about things that I look back now and I cringe. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you used to think that. And everything's about growth. Everything's about growth. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and and being allowed to make mistakes and then find your way. And it's the one thing that you know you and I have spoken about quite a lot about why we won't be cancel culture. Yeah. To a point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, of course. The caveat being that some people do just need to go away. <laughs> That's that that we know that to be true. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the idea of cancel culture as a thing. Uh, again, you know, we, we talk about this all the time, the podcast with other guests, like nuance around everything is so important. And um, if we just kind of go one strike, you're out on every possible offence, large or small, then we don't create a culture for growth. And and again, we, we talk about this all the time. Without a culture for growth, we're not going to achieve our aims because nobody's going to get behind it because everybody's going to be fearful that they made a mistake once in their past and and even though they may have changed, and again, with the caveat that some things, there are some things that are, an exclusion to this this thought process but um we do need to, we do need to create a space for people to be able to go yeah i fucked up how do i fix it i am genuinely and sincerely on the train to fix it so we we have to make room for that i think yeah we do because other like you say we don't get any further forward we're then just in a cycle of constantly that um so which obviously kind of kick-started your writing again and then I've seen like obviously a shift and probably you can speak more to this about you moving your writing from theatre to screen, mm-hmm. which kind of begins to lead us <laughs> to beautiful, the point. Beautiful segue. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like she's done this before, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's like she's a professional. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I know I did notice that shift that started to shift for you and in you. Um, and obviously, if you want to speak, if there was a moment to that 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 shifted for you, but also where where it brings us to now, which is very exciting. <laughs> there was a shift actually, and I think if I'm if I'm really trying to analyze it, I think it was COVID. I think it was the pandemic. Yes. And the sort of, yeah, the perspective shift that that put in everybody. I've always really adored screen. I've I've been a movie fangirl nerd person for my entire life. And, but there was just something about that world that unless I somehow miraculously got lucky enough to be in it as an actor, it was inaccessible to me. Like, I didn't know the first, like, writing a play was one thing, I suppose, like, there was there wasn't any rules or 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 nobody told me I couldn't write a play. In fact, it was the opposite. Like there was just there's oh you'll hear I'm sure everybody hears this all the time. If you want to do something, you have to make your own work. Make your own work, and that's sort of embedded in the theatre world. Make your own work. So write a play, go away and write something, and and so that was just part of that. But for me, I was like, well, if people do that in the in the, the film world or in the screen world, I have, haven't have the foggiest idea how that all works. Um, so I'd sort of relegated it to like being a film fan. Um, and then the world nearly ended and I sort of had a moment of like, well, wait, hang on a fucking second. Like, I'm pretty sure I could probably do this. I can write. I'll just figure it out. <laughs> and um. And yeah, so I kind of like tapped into that sort of early 21-year-old Louise and said, she kind of knocked on her door and went, what would you do? And she'd be like, stop being such a pussy and go fucking do it. Um, 
So, although once again, I'm going to say though, pussies are really tough. Pussies are really tough. Yeah. And so actually, what she should have said was, "Go and be a pussy and just go back into it." Yeah. <laughs> um. So, see, this is the thing. I'm still, I'm, st- I'm still, I'm still learning. I still say that phrase every now and again, and I shouldn't say it. I, I um, mean, every, every, lots of people do. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of people do say that phrase. Yeah. It's just it's one of those ones that really sticks with me because of the late great Betty White's phrase. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to butcher it, so I will get it up and I'll come back to you all. Continue <laughs> on, Miss Louise Oliver. I will. I, I just think it sounds funny. Um. So, yeah, and and around about that time, the convergence program that is offered by Short Circuit, um, which is a film talent development hub here in Scotland. Um, for the first time, they were offering this development program for new screenwriters, and it was specifically offered to people who were working in other creative disciplines who were interested in learning how to write for film. And it was the first time they'd ever offered that this program hadn't existed before. And I went, huh, I think that's me. And then in true imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome style, I left it for ages kind of started writing a writing application then pulled back and went that's not for me who do I think I am then went back and then pulled did did that little game for weeks until it was like 24 hours before the deadline panicked and then finished it and put it in like with about five minutes to spare so obviously I thought well I fucked that um because you're an idiot you're an indecisive idiot um but miraculously I got offered a place on it and that really, that's the thing that really kickstarted this, like really got the ball rolling. Um, because I I adored that course. I adored that program. It was fantastic. It was a real game changer for me. Um, and it really instilled in me a, a kind of like, oh, I think I can do this. And not only that, I think I'm good at this. Um, there was just something about that process that, really like excited me in a way that writing for theatre hadn't up until that point or hadn't in a hadn't in a while basically um and I can't really explain that I don't know how to explain that I don't know if it was just because it was something like a little bit of encouragement goes a long way I guess and then it kind of snowballed from there and I just I wrote a short and wrote a feature outline and then and then I I wrote a script for the end series and filmed that and uh, it became a little short film called Glitch and that did okay. That did a wee bit of, tiny bit of business at some small independent film yeah, festivals. It did really well. Um, yeah, it was mad. I mean, I mean, like it did really well. You filmed it through COVID. Like, yes, you know, yeah. like, like let's just remember at the height of it all. Yeah, I filmed like, it did okay. It did really well. <laughs> I know it was what it was wild I filmed it in the house like it was just insane and then um and yeah I just kept at it kept pecking away at some ideas and did a couple of like there was a couple of um again this is kind of the responsibility or like COVID is kind of responsible for this ScreenCraft which is a an American-based um sort of screen development hub um, normally do this big mad um, conference, the screen development conference where you can pitch and network and do all sorts of things. They normally hold it in person in LA, but they couldn't this year because of the pandemic. So they put it online and it meant that it became cheaper. What would normally be like $150 or $200 to attend became $60. And it was all done on this online hub. So I went and did that. That was amazing. Huge game changer again. 
and then um and yeah it's just sort of spiraled from there and then in 2022 i got on the edinburgh international film festival's script starter program for new screenwriters <laughs> and uh yeah and that sort of brings us up to date um in many ways <laughs> i mean it does but it also brings us up to the point that you and a very good friend of yours, uh, yes. who you met while you were at Glasgow Uni, have, comes full circle. <laughs> comes full circle. Yeah, we love a throwback. We love a throwback yeah. theatrically. We love a throwback in a TV series and in a film. We're just having a throwback in life right now and on the podcast. I, um, yeah. And that you have set up, created your own production company. God, when you say it out loud like that, it sounds insane. Yes, so Paul Barry, who's a filmmaker uh, here in Scotland, a great filmmaker and, and also a screenwriter, screenwriter, director, that's his practice. Uh, he's a friend of mine of 20 years. We met at Glasgow Uni when we were babies and we've been friends ever since. And he's put me in stuff that he's made. And I've pr- I produced a short film for him way back when. And we've we've worked on each other's stuff in that way for a long time. And we always said we would do a thing, like a formalized thing together. We've been saying it pretty much since uni. And um, so in this last year, we just started bouncing ideas around and we're like, we need to find the thing. What's the thing we're going to do next that we're going to do together? And um, we would just, we send each other scripts and he reads stuff for me, I read stuff for him. And we were bouncing these ideas across and um. And I'd written something kind of dark. I'd written this kind of stream of consciousness monologue about an actor in her 30s going into this audition and it's being horrific and all the dark things that she thinks and the, around being in, the, being in the industry and all the awfulness that comes with that. And I sent that over to him and then he came back to me. And now while this this was going on, a lot of conversations that we've been having and a lot of the, activism, the more intense activism that we've been doing as persistent and nasty and, and with our little community of women was a couple of really intense things going on in the news and some pretty bad stuff happening um in relation to harassment in the arts so that's always as you know Elaine that's always a live conversation for you and I anyway so it's a conversation that a lot of us are having in other in other rooms together and um Paul came back and said what about what if this audition thing because the audition idea really sparked something in him and he said what if it was this and I was like holy shit and it hit me right where I lived and that what he was saying became the film that we are currently promoting and fundraising for which is a film called In the Room which will be the debut film of our film company Bar Italia Films um, and the film is about a an actor going in for a callback audition and she's on the cusp of her 30s it's a really big important callback audition she's vibing with the women casting director and the edgy cool female director everything feels like it's going so well and it's going to be a big turnaround point for her in her life and where she's at but the casting director says that they've got the male lead already cast and he's been kind enough to come in and read in the room for her today and he walks in and everything changes because Kate our protagonist realizes that this is a man from her past that she's been trying very hard to forget for traumatic reasons and the film switches into horror movie horror movie mode at that point in many ways and it the stakes are raised and it's it's the journey from Kate's fight or flight being triggered and it's a big rage filled road of catharsis 
not going to say more than that. I'm not going to ruin the ending. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. You are absolutely not. I would, I would edit it out even if you had said it. <laughs> um, it is. It gets me really excited, even just like you know talking about it. And we've talked about it um, before, so you know I've obviously got inside info. Um, but it's it's important. It's vital. But by probably more so for us in that sense of we absolutely have almost similar conversations with people sometimes about this this situation and or something similar like it that yeah. has and is happening to people yeah um and that feels really it is it does feel like a, a culmination of the work that we've been doing as persistent and nasty in our own individual activism and then with our community um that you are managing to put that on screen yeah yeah and I guess I mean I I think I know the answer to this but I really want to ask the question I do you feel do you feel a huge weight right now Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's um, the weight has been the weight has been made lighter uh, since we announced it, since we put it out into the world, because the response has been so overwhelming in terms of how it's touched people and the kind of things that people are saying to us. Paul and I were at the we were industry delegates at the Glasgow Film Festival just at the top of the month so we were doing a lot of honing ourselves about and like pitching not just the company but the film and we'd made the decision to start talking about it um, in a bit more detail and you know not a single person reacted but like everybody went oh that's that's important that's a big deal that's yes like it so it was very, very nerve-wracking. And as as you know, we as when when Paul pitched the, the 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 specifics of the idea to me and said, What if we took the audition thing and this stuff and put them together and what if it's this? And I burst into tears when he said it. And we've had that reaction since talking to other people about the film who it's really impacted. And when we describe it as a thing, it triggers something in them and and it's a very emotional response, but in a in a positive way, because it's like it's almost like it's like a relief like a like being able to kind of release something almost knowing that this is going to be depicted on screen in some some way and done in a way that is um I hope our intention is very much to to be cathartic and to to be sensitive to the cost of the what the cost is to the audience and to the people viewing traumatic material because I think we've seen depictions on screen of abuse and harassment and, and and exploring themes that this film will explore before but I feel like it's never done to the right level of sensitivity um, and what the cost is to the audience and I think that's what the point of this is this is supposed to feel cathartic this is supposed to shine a light on a conversation that we're still not quite having really not really like I think we've been having a version of it since the whole Me Too cultural phenomenon but we've, we've not really spoken in detail but like what does this actually look like in the day-to-day -day? and what if we show you it what if we actually show you it what if we actually show you what it would be like what it would, would it would feel like what if we made you feel like a woman who has to be in that or a person in that situation because it happens all the time we know it happens all the time um 
that's why we have whisper networks about like you know certain things and yeah anyway I'm sorry I'm getting myself kind of like worked up talking about it don't, don't apologize because it's important and it's important that um I think what is making everybody have such a reaction to it Louise is the fact that you are at the helm of it that people know that this is going to be treated properly it's going to be held the audience is going to be held and the actors will be held and that's why I think it's having the reaction that it's having so you know you mentioned that you are crowdfunding um, we are crowdfunding yes <laughs> um but also you are lucky enough to have MK of Scotland batch funding so yes indeed so we got selected to be part of the crowdfunder UK um and create scotland match funding competition which means um that as part of the crowdfunding campaign each donation that is made is matched by creative scotland in real time um up to the value of 250 pounds uh for each unique and individual donation so each individual who say you donated 20 pounds create scotland will match that for 20. it's all unique donations though so if, if for talking sake somebody wanted to be i don't know thought they were being supportive but slightly cheeky and donated like 20 sets of 20 pounds only that first unique donation from there will get matched for 20 pounds um so yes um that's happening right now it launched on monday and we're very 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 close uh already which is wild because the campaign's open until the 17th of april um um but in the first week we've made about 77 percent of our target which is which is incredible it's really astonishing it really is incredible uh paul and i have been really touched by the response and the the rapidity of this response and i think yeah I, yeah i i don't have words actually it's it's really quite overwhelming um we're so deeply grateful um and the crowdfund will mean that we can make this film a reality and do it in the way that it should be done which is obviously paying everybody for their time but one thing that Paul and I talked about really early on when we started drafting this idea was even though there's not a physical scene in it in the traditional sense we want an intimacy coordinator on set um, I think that's really important to us because of the nature of what film deals with um, so all of all this this campaign will allow us to do that that kind of thing and 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 do not just the idea justice but everybody involved in making it happen do their time energy and commitment to the idea justice um what i will say is that um there's a slight competitive nature to this uh program it's kind of first over the finish line um will be first come first served and then collect the, the match money from creative scotland so the sooner we can raise that target the better um we're looking for seven grand um and we're very very close as I say, so um, every little helps, every shade of the campaign, every time somebody shouts about it, everybody, uh, yeah, yeah, the more you talk about it, um, the better. And if you are able to make a donation, that is obviously a wonderful, but we know it's tough out there. So just just spreading the word and amplifying it is just as valuable. Um, and we just, we have a, lov a lovely set of rewards as well, because it's a crowdfunding campaign. We do have things that we can share with you and give back to you for your generosity. So um, please do go to the the crowd uh, funder project page, which is crowdfunder.co.uk forward slash in hyphen the hyphen room. I mean, I'll make sure it's in the show notes. Um, I know you will, but I just wanted to show you how professional I can be. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, 
I think it's incredible that in six days you've got to 77% of um, your total. I can't believe it. I genuinely can't believe it. I I, I can though, because A, because of um, you and Paul, um, and B, because of what it's about, but also C, because it's something that we talk about and you know I'm super passionate about this, that everyone, no matter what background you're from, where where you grew up, and what your race is, what your gender is, where you, uh, what your sexuality is, um, that you get to see yourself on stage or screen, and you get to see maybe some of your experiences, and know that you're not alone, and know that other people understand your pain, your joy, your heartache your sorrow, your loss, all of those things. And I think what you're doing by making this film is giving a voice to many people who have experienced something like this or something similar and that haven't been able to get that out there. Yeah. I think that was the scariest part. And for me, there was... um. I, it felt really important to me on a number of levels when we formalized the idea I was like yeah this is it Paul this is the one for a number of reasons and it's scary for me because it felt very felt very exposing it felt like I was not just making myself vulnerable but potentially a community um, because I feel like for me it feels very much like this film is honoring a lot of the work that we've been doing together over the last few years and with our our community who support us um in that advocacy work so it felt it felt like I, I f- it feels like I have to do everything in my power to get it right because it is an honoring of that because like you say it's it's all of our story it's every it's so many people's story but there was also this nerve-wracking thing of like oh god because almost like it's almost something about putting it out there feels like there must be a more delicate or less clunky way of saying this, but like telling on myself and also telling on other people. Do you know what I mean? It's like by putting it out there, you're like this, you know, people are going to make assumptions and they're going to be like, oh, I see. And there was just this real scary moment of like, fuck, what if this doesn't have the support of the industry or like people are like, mm-hmm, oh, really? Okay. You know, you know that because we all, would... because we overthink and we panic in this industry. Um <laughs> fosters that a that worry and that fear and that you know if you put your head above the parapet and you say something it's going to either get taken the wrong way or people are going to think they're being attacked and therefore they're going to shut down and therefore people are going to be like no we don't want to hear you but you but we know that that's not necessarily the case yeah and also this is important I think it is. I really, I really do. And, um, and, you know, Paul and I are doing a lot of work. The script has to be perfect and we will share that with people we trust. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, but it's not just the writing of it. It's like understand. Like we, we've done a lot of work together, like doing stream of consciousness monologues to get inside Kate's head, which obviously I'm very like, you know, it's, it's like understanding. I, 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 an emotional state and a presence of mind and and you know we're we're working really hard on 
on servicing that and, and honoring that in every sense. Um, so it is important to both of us that we, it, I guess it's 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 so much more than just our first short film as a company. It's it's so much more than that. It's really important to both of us. Which is why it's probably the one that you've both been waiting for. I think so. Feels It feels oddly right. The timing just feels yeah. oddly right. It's, yeah. Yeah. So for everyone who is a, who can um, donate, amazing. Uh, all the details are in the show notes today. But also, even if you can't donate, just sharing, telling people about uh, the film project, the film, telling people about the film, telling people where they can donate if they can afford to. We, you know, we all know how tight things are at the moment, but um, knowing what this film is, what it's about and what it means I know people will be fully on board, even if it's a fiver. Yeah. Oh, like, like it won't be a fiver because it'll be a tenner, actually. If you give us a fiver, yes. it'll be a tenner because Scott will match it. Yes, they so will. Actually, every little helps. And, um, and yeah, just amplification is, is just as valuable. Please go and find the project page, shout about it. We're on social media that felt, I mean, I'm sure like, um, a lot of our listeners maybe follow me personally on social media already. I mean, I'm talking about it on my own social media, but the company Bar Italia Films also has social media. So we are on Twitter and Instagram at Bar Italia Films. So you can find us on there and, and the various project updates that we'll be doing over the next couple of weeks. We'll go on there too. And just to let everybody know, why are you called Bar Italia Films? Oh, <laughs> It is very cute. Uh, so we're called Bar Italia Films. Uh, it's a nod to the pulp song of the same name. Because uh, when Paul and I first met and uh, we were going to Jim's bar in the QM far more often than we were going to tutorials or lectures. Um, don't do that, kids. Go to school. Stick in. Study. <laughs> <laughs> um we uh one of our first big nights out where like, I think it was the 12 hour cheesy pop and we got absolutely mad with it and then um, ended up like riding the subway over, round and round and uh, like singing Bar Italia at the top of our lungs and like stumbling home in the crack of dawn with the sunrise behind us just blethering shite and talking about our future and everything that we wanted to do and singing this song because we were both really into that album and really into pulp and <laughs> and that's why it's called Bar Italia Films and thinking about the future and hopes and dreams and story and friendship and all of that is kind of going to be embedded in our storytelling a little bit. So that's sort of where it comes from as well. <laughs> and I love it. Uh, I love the reasoning behind it. I think the reasoning is so beautiful. And I think there's something really lovely, especially when you talk about that idea of you two walking home like early in the morning sunrising and all of that and just you know that hope that a new production company a new film production company brings to Scotland brings to uh, the world because everybody needs their stories told um so I'm very excited for you I'm very proud of you Um, thought you're gonna make me cry (laughs) I am though I'm very proud of you and um I know that this short film will be incredible because it will have heart and care and soul and a powerful message. But it will make sure that everyone involved and the audience is 
cared for and held while you tell this really important story? That's the goal. That's the plan. <laughs> That's the plan. Um, Louise Oliver, thanks very much for coming on the Persistent and Nasty podcast. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> I mean, been odd but bizarrely lovely. It's been really lovely. And um, I'm hoping we can turn the tables at some point quite soon and um, yeah, have you as the guest. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be weird. I'll find that really weird. <laughs> I think you will. I mean, listen, mate, I found it really weird and you're the main host. Like I'm the occasional <laughs> co-host and even I found it a bit weird being turned around. So you're going to love it. <laughs> yeah. I'll be like, oh, no. I will be super nervous. I already know that. But just, um, <laughs> just the FYI for everyone, back to the Betty White quote. Uh, which uh, she said why do people say grow some balls balls are weak and sensitive if you really want to get tough grow a vagina those things really take a pounding they sure do late <laughs> <laughs> great Betty White bringing it right so what um, we actually need to say then if you're thinking about something that you want to do whether it's write a script or start a company what I'm going to tell you is don't be such a pair of balls be a vagina and go do it. <laughs> oh, be a vagina. That's, that's another badge. Yeah, be a vagina. That's another badge. <laughs> um, thanks, Louise. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was delightful. <laughs> I love you. I love you too. Um, and until next time, lovely listeners, stay, stay nasty. nasty. That was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God! I'm never gonna get that right. It was terrible. Was it? Okay, I oh. believe you. <laughs>